Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas About Jails and Justice. You're not going to be able to write it on a bronze plaque and nail it to the wall and say, that is justice. In every case, in every day, the same way. That's cookie-cutter stuff. That's law. What we're talking about is a dynamic process which comes out of the life of the community where people are sitting down and struggling together to find the right way to go. How are we going to live together? That's the question of justice. Justice, understood as a question of living together, is the subject of tonight's program. So long as we think of crime primarily as a violation of the law, we can think of justice as nothing more than the discharge of the law's penalty for that violation. But crime is usually a violation of a person and a community as well. And these dimensions of crime are frequently left unaddressed when the only response society makes to a crime is a prison term for the offender. The broken law is repaired, but the causes and consequences of the crime are set aside. This Ideas episode is about a definition of justice which includes these neglected dimensions, a definition which makes the satisfaction of the victim, the reclamation of the offender, and the involvement of the community more important than the letter of the criminal law. The programme is the seventh in a series of ten programmes on prison and its alternatives. By David Cayley. I recently saw a full-page advertisement placed in Saturday Night Magazine by an organisation called Caveat. It showed a prisoner glowering menacingly through bars. Above him, a caption reads, the easiest way out is through a crack in the system. Below, it says, our justice system is allowing too many violent offenders on the streets to murder and brutalize. Caveat speaks for what the ad calls protection of society and recognition of victims' rights, and it represents what has become an extremely influential popular movement throughout North America. In recent years, this movement has worked to overcome the marginalization of victims in the criminal justice system and has been generally successful in expanding their rights to information and compensation and in giving them a voice in cases concerning them. But it has also tended to polarize discussion of criminal justice by portraying the interests of victims and offenders as utterly antagonistic. And it has tended to strengthen the prison system by fostering the idea that endless prison sentences are the best way to protect the community against crime. This program is about an approach that has grown up in parallel with the victims' rights movement. It shares some of its aims, but differs fundamentally in its view of justice. It's called victim-offender mediation, or sometimes reconciliation, and it grew out of the Mennonite Church in the Kitchener-Waterloo region of Ontario. It was first formally used in 1974, and one of the people responsible was Dave Worth, who today is the director of the Mennonite Central Committee in Ontario. We uh, started kind of a, one of these little uh, forums where you got people in the justice system to sit down and talk to each other about the meaning of all of this. And so uh, we, had a, we, we would have lunch together. So Mark Yancey, a probation officer, a couple of policemen, a crown attorney, some volunteers, some interested people would just sit around and talk about what was happening. And one day Mark Yancey came and he said, now look, I've been ordered to do a pre-sentence report. 
And it's these two guys in the city of Elmira, the town of Elmira, north of uh, Kitchener-Waterloo. And um, they had a little disagreement with the police, got a little drunk, went out and vandalized 22 different homes and business establishments in one night. And, of course, the police uh, caught them easily because the trail led right back to their apartment and um, charged them. And uh, now they're coming before the court, and I, as a probation officer, Mark says, am supposed to write a report and tell the judge what I think we ought to do with these guys. And he, sa he says, I'm sitting here saying, okay, what are we going to do? We can send the guys to jail. We can put them on probation, and they'll have to come in and see me once a month. Uh, maybe we can fine them. But he says, you know, really, in what way is that going to help the people in Elmira deal with this fact? Everybody's upset about this vandalism that happened, and some of the, their own kids did it. And he says, how are we going to help the victims and the community deal with this? He says, you know, there really ought to be some better way. He says, you know, really, it, ought, it would really be therapeutic if we would get those guys and they'd go and meet their victims. And everybody around the room sort of thought, yeah, that's a good idea, you know, but uh, it's not going to happen. It's just not done. So at the end of the meeting, Mark and I were talking, and I guess I was the naive volunteer, and I said, like, is there any particular reason why this couldn't happen? Is there anything in law that says you can't do that? And he thought about it for a while and said, no, I really don't think there's anything that says it can't happen. But he says, you know what, we should go up and talk to the judge. And so uh, when it came time for the court appearance, we went up and met uh, Judge Gordon McConnell in his chambers. And Mark said, here's the pre-sentence report. But he says, you know what I really think we ought to do, Judge, is that we ought to take these guys back and have them meet their victims. You know, it would be therapeutic for them. And the judge listened respectfully. Uh, and uh, he said, no, I don't think we'll do that. And so we went back out and sat in the back of the courtroom. It was May the 4th in uh, 1974 in the old courthouse in Waterloo, upstairs courtroom. The sun was shining. It was a beautiful day, and we're sitting in the back, kind of discouraged, you know, because it wasn't going to happen. Well, when the case was called, the judge said, now, I'm ordering a further three-week remand, and he says, I'm ordering you two young men to go with Mr. Yancey and Mr. Worth there, and I want you to meet your victims and bring me back a report on uh, the damage they've suffered. And the Crown Attorney, Bill Morrison, turned around and looked at us like, now, what have you guys done? <laughs> and we looked at each other and said, now, what have we done? <laughs> And because we really didn't know, we went and met with the two guys afterward and said, look, we'll meet you at such and such a corner up there at 6 o'clock, and we'll take it from there. So we met the guys up there. It took us two nights, but basically the routine we did was we said, now you're going to go up to the door, you ring the doorbell, you introduce yourself, you say why you're here, and we'll be behind you all the way. And so that's what they did. And you can imagine in 22 different victims, you had 22 different responses. Every thing from the guy who'd had the tires on his new Volvo slashed, all four of them. The Volvo was six weeks old, and these guys rang his doorbell and said, uh, um, well, uh, you remember your Volvo had the tires slashed? Yeah. He said, well, uh, we're the guys that did it. Yeah? He says, and yeah, and the judge has told us we've got to come and uh, find out what the damage was. And this guy was about ready to plow him in the face. You know, and if it hadn't been for Mark and I there, he probably would have. And uh, everywhere thing from the other person who was the, the older woman who was the secretary for the Baptist church. And they had kicked in the radiator of her car and caused several hundred dollars worth of damage. 
And she said, oh, boys, come in, come in, let's sit down, I'm going to get you some, would you like some cookies and something to drink and talk about it and everything in between. But at the end of it, the, uh, the guys and the victims had agreed on how much money ought to be paid back. Some places they did work for the victims. They had kicked holes in a boat, and so they were going to work with the guy to patch up the fiberglass. They broke a cross off a church sign. They were going to weld it back on, and et cetera, et cetera. So we went back to Judge McConnell and said, here's the report. Here's the damage. Here's what they've agreed. He says, do it. I'm going to give you three months to do it. So at the end of three months, we went back around and did the same circuit. And basically, the guys, it was very different. This time they rang the doorbell, not walked right up there and said, remember us, we're back. Here's your certified check for $100. Let's shake hands. And um, the comment from the victim that, uh, that still stick, sticks with me after all these years was this one woman said, look, we live in Elmira, it's a small town. We both shop in the same stores on Main Street. And she said, look, when you see me on Main Street, don't go crossing the street to avoid me. She says, come right up to me, shake my hand, because we're clean now. I don't like what you did. I don't appreciate it. I'll never appreciate that. But she says, as far as I'm concerned, you owe me nothing. We're clean. We can be friends. And uh, that was the first experiment, if you will, which led to the Victim Offender Reconciliation Program. And basically, we said, all right, here we are. Let's try to make peace between the parties in these kinds of conflicts. And it's as simple as saying, let's get people to sit down face to face and talk about what happened how you feel about it, and what you're going to do about it, and try to make some kind of opening into the future. And uh, really, from 1974 until 1994, 1995, into the future, we're still experimenting with that in different places around the world. I think there's lots of people that are experimenting with that. They're basically saying that the present retributive justice system, which basically says, okay, you've committed a crime, you've uh, broken the queen's peace, and therefore, you are going to pay for it. You are going to hurt for it. That's a bankrupt system. It's providing no experience of justice for the victims, no experience of justice for the offenders, and the community certainly doesn't feel any more resolved about it. There's more fear in the community now than there was. And I think it's mostly because there's all this unresolved stuff out there. People know about these things happening in their communities, and they don't see any attempt to deal with it. And so what we're trying to say is let's find a different way, a way to restore some peace uh, so that people can look each other in the face in the community again and can deal with the, the brokenness that's there. Since 1974, victim offender mediation programs have been adopted in many criminal justice jurisdictions throughout North America. In Canada, the largest program is in Manitoba where an organization founded by the Mennonite Central Committee called Manitoba Mediation Services mediates up to 400 cases a year. It's still only a small part of the criminal justice system as a whole, Dave Worth says, but he thinks the idea continues to make steady progress. The question now for him is how far communities are willing to go in taking responsibility for the things that we now expect the criminal justice system to deal with for us. I think for most people, we could find a solution in our communities that would limit the risk to most of us if we had the will to do it. Right now, we're, we don't have the will, and we would rather get that person out of sight, out of mind, and make somebody else deal with them. The irony of these things is 
when you take a, a, a pedophile, unless you're willing to lock them up till they die, they're going to come out somewhere. Please don't bring them back to my house, we say. Put them out on the street in Toronto. I think Kitchener-Waterloo, when they export their problems like that, are being grossly unfair to other people. If we know who a difficult person is in Kitchener-Waterloo, then we ought to keep him here because we know who he is, we know best who he is, and we can provide the best security, if you will, for the rest of us because we know who he is. We've tried here in Kitchener-Waterloo. Uh, periodically we try. A case will come up and we'll go and we'll put a plan together and give it to the system and say, look, here's a plan to keep this guy in KW. And every time the system says, no, thank you. Export, please. Now, and of course, they've just... That's what Toronto's for. <laughs> that's what Toronto's for. And exactly what happens. We had a very well-known case here. We had a plan where we could keep this guy here. The judge was ready to go for it, but he said, I, 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 I can't risk it, so I've got to send him away. So he sent him away. He did his time. He was a model prisoner. He was released. Okay, we had a plan to take him back in the community. But certain authorities said, no, 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 uh, we don't want him back in this community. So he was not paroled back to this community. Where did he end up in Toronto? Where nobody knew who this guy was, where there was no plan to provide any kind of supports for him so that he wouldn't uh, go down the same track. And what happened? Two, three months later, he offended again. And now he's locked up for good. Uh, so therefore, I say Kitchener-Waterloo exported its problems and caused another problem in another community. I'm not saying it's easy. This is about risk and vulnerability. And are we willing to risk? And right now, basically, we're saying, no, we're not, except we want to hire a few guards and make them risk it for us. And I don't think we're being fair to them. They know we're not being fair to them. They know that we're asking them to take on all the sins of the world and deal with it, and we expect them to be humane while they're doing it. And they don't like it. It's not fair. Behind this unfairness, behind our willingness to displace our problems onto jail guards or other communities, behind the idea that certain offenders have placed themselves outside human consideration, there lies a certain conception of justice. And it is in this conception of justice that Dave Worth thinks that our problem finally lies. For him, reforming criminal justice is not a question of new techniques or expanded programs. It's a question of worldview. I'm more convinced than ever that this is really about belief systems. You know, we can create all kinds of interesting programs. When you talk to the people in the system, they say, you know, if, if you just give us a few more policemen, or a few more judges, or a few more lawyers, or a few more jails, or you talk to the people in the alternative system, and they'll say, oh man, you know, a few more halfway houses. You know, give us a few more victim-offender reconciliation programs. Give us a few more of this or a few more of that. I'm convinced that's not it at all. Those are important. Those are, those are important because they're symbols and they're experiments. They're testing. We're pushing the boundaries about what is actually possible. But folks, what really has to happen is we have to change our belief system. We've got to go down to the root of the thing and we have to decide someday what really is the appropriate response to a violation. What is it that we want? And basically, we still believe in the old vengeance model. We still believe in retribution. You mess with me, I'm going to mess with you. 
and I'm probably going to hit you harder than you hit me, because then I think somehow that's making justice. Or at least, if not justice, I'm getting it back. And ultimately, that's death. We've seen it in the, in the, in the big picture. And this is the link for us as Mennonites with the question of war. It's the same response. If somebody hurts me in the international scene, then what we do is we get a bigger army and we go beat them back. If somebody creates a, a small atomic bomb, we make a bigger one. You mess with us, you blow one city up, we'll blow your whole country off the face of the earth. And we're applying the same war mentality against the problem of crime. You hear it. It's a war against crime. Well, war doesn't work. It doesn't bring peace and harmony to anybody. It brings more pain and suffering. Take a look around the world today. Is the war machine working? I don't think it is. Take a look around the world today. In the problem of crime, is a war mentality working? It's not working. And so we've got to go back to the roots of our understandings of what is wrong with crime and what is our response. Since Dave Wirth and Mark Yancey started the ball rolling in Elmira, Ontario 22 years ago, victim offender mediation has been applied mainly to property crimes and other cases at the more minor end of the criminal justice spectrum. Major crimes of violence have been excluded as essentially unforgivable. But Dave Gustafson wondered whether healing wasn't all the more necessary after crimes that could potentially go on haunting everyone involved for the rest of their lives. He's a Mennonite minister and the director of Community Justice Initiatives in Langley, British Columbia. This organization started its mediation work in 1981 with the cases the courts referred to them, cases involving crimes like robbery, common assault, and fraud. It has now handled 1,600 such cases. Then, in 1989, Dave Gustafson and his colleagues undertook a study of the feasibility of victim-offender reconciliation in more serious cases. They began by trying to ascertain how many offenders would be willing to meet with their victims. This involved a review of all the people placed in federal institutions in the lower mainland of B.C. during the last six months of 1988. We discovered that there were 62 in the six-month period that we decided to deal with, and of those, 42 had committed violent crimes, and we were interested only in the people who committed violent crimes. So we interviewed them, and of those people, only three offenders, said, no, I can't see there being any gain in this. And then we found the victims uh, in the great majority of those cases and interviewed them and said, you know, in a crime as serious as the one perpetrated against you, would you find any benefit whatsoever in some kind of communication with the offender? Are there things that weren't answered in the court system? Uh, do you still have unanswered questions about the possibility of this person wreaking vengeance against you? Uh, for helping contribute to their convictions, being the Crown star witness in the courtroom. And almost inevitably, the victims that we contacted said, you are the first person to express any interest in me or my case since this thing went to court. Uh, I have been shunted to the sidelines now that the state no longer has use for me as the Crown star witness, and it's marvelous to hear from you. Dave Gustafson and his colleagues proceeded to set up a pilot project 
which was funded by the Correctional Service of Canada in 1991. An evaluation of the project, submitted to the Solicitor General in 1995, reported, remarkably, that there was unanimous support for the program from all victim and offender respondents interviewed. One of the cases that Dave Gustafson dealt with during this time began when he was approached by a group of women in another city who had been the victims of a masked rapist who was by then in prison. I went to this city to meet with this group of women. Four of them wanted to meet with me about this particular program. Uh, they were aware that through it they might be able to gather some information and perhaps even meet with this offender. They had a need to take that that mask off. They had a need to see him, the human being, because he had become larger than life. He was haunting their nightmares, their daytime ideation, just on and on and on. There were post-traumatic stress sequela that just showed up for them every single day. One of them had not slept between 3 and 5 a.m. for nine years. She was assaulted in her own home, in her own bedroom at 4 in the morning. She knew that it began at 4.11 because she was assaulted uh, in front of a vanity and bumped a, a radio, which a uh, digital clock radio. She had been a music lover, and she wasn't able to listen to music. Even uh, the music in a supermarket or whatever would be a trigger for her. Uh, she wasn't able to use a mirror because of the mirror on the vanity for those nine years. She cut her own hair, she did her makeup, she did everything without the use of a mirror. Those kinds of post-traumatic stress, Sequela went on for her for nine years. They were absolutely relentless. One of the other women was on the way into her own apartment and he forced her into the mailroom of this apartment and assaulted her. I need to make clear, David, that all of this is in the public domain and I'm not telling stories here that I that are iffy in terms of confidentialities. At any rate, those two women very courageously decided to come out here and meet this man at the institution. He had gone through two years of solid treatment and we had screened him in about as many ways as it's possible to screen someone to make sure that his motives were genuine and that he was taking full responsibility for his actions. That in itself, just the perpetrator taking responsibility for his actions, is, it seems, just a, a therapeutic watershed in case after case that we've dealt with. And what we were told is that night, the woman I told you about who hadn't slept for nine years slept like a baby, the boogeyman had had his proportions reduced. He was no longer the absolute giant of her nightmares. He was a human being sitting across from her, no longer masked, remorseful, listening, respectful, clearly in pain, clearly pained by the impacts of what he was now hearing for the first time uh, about how long this had gone on and the impacts of his own criminality in her life and just what what havoc it had wreaked. And the very fact that he was able to do that, and she was able to vent her own anger, her own rage, and at the same time, toward the end of that meeting, begin to, to evidence, I don't know, just some willingness to accept that maybe he was genuine, maybe he was getting it, maybe she had participated in helping him get it. It was a pretty remarkable thing to watch. In fact, at the end of that meeting, I think the people who were present in the room had the sense that this may sound a little strange, but we had the sense that we were on holy ground and we still had our shoes on. Both these women, Dave Gustafson says, have been able to break the grip of their victimization and are now flourishing. What they needed 
was what he has found that victims generally need, an explanation of why the crime occurred, a recognition by the offender of the harm he has done, and an acknowledgement from the offender of his responsibility. It was the same for another client of Dave Gustafson's, a woman called Diane, who had been raped many years before and then seen her attacker acquitted in court. She said, if you can find this man, I know that he was acquitted, but if you can find him, and if there's any hope at all that I can simply let him know about the impacts on my life, if there's any possibility that he would take responsibility for this rape, even after having been acquitted by the criminal justice courts, that would be a marvelous healing thing for me. I went looking for him because, of course, we knew his name and discovered that he had been incarcerated for subsequent sexual assaults and was currently in a penitentiary in eastern Canada. Diane, first of all, wrote a letter to this man. It started out as a poem asking him questions about just who in the world he was and what was in his head that he could have been so violent and that he could have taken such liberties with her. I took that, that letter and sat down with him, read through it, and he told me that he had tried since 1969, a year following this trial, to take responsibility for this because he was so troubled by the way that the courts and the cross-examination had left this woman utterly destroyed in the courtroom. And he did his own videotape, which went on for about two hours, validating her as an absolutely innocent victim, taking responsibility for the crime, answering any questions that she had, and literally laying his own heart bare in terms of the questions she had about his own childhood sexual abuse, what had made him so bent, I took that back to her, and uh, between the letter that she received from him validating that so that she had a written copy, and then the, the videotape, Diane was free. She saw her psychiatrist two or three more times. She is now moving on, and she has told this story publicly, so I, I have no fear about, uh, about sharing this. She has been thriving in the most incredible ways. She is now managing a branch of one of the largest banking institutions in Western Canada. Parenting her children well, no longer uh, the hypervigilant mother who is smothering her daughter. And those are her words, not mine. And uh, just in every regard uh, has put this very largely behind her. Forgive and forget is, has been a very troublesome couple, says a friend of mine, Wilma Dirksen, who's uh, one of the uh, founders of Family Survivors of Homicide in Winnipeg. She said, you know, the notion that we ought to forgive and forget is is ludicrous. We will never forget. But there's we need to go through a process by which we can release some of this stuff. Uh, otherwise, it will simply eat us alive. And that is what Diane has done. Victim offender mediation is rooted in a view of crime as primarily a violation of a relationship and the creation of an obligation. This view also underlies an approach to juvenile crime that has been adopted in New Zealand in recent years. In 1989, New Zealand passed the Children, Young Persons and Their Families Act. The act allows juvenile offenses, where there is an admission of guilt, 
to be dealt with by what is called a family group conference. An official called a youth justice coordinator assembles everyone who feels concern in the case, from the police to the friends and family of both victim and offender. Discussion focuses on the harm that has been done and on what will make it good. The youth justice coordinator guides and directs the proceedings, functioning more or less as chair, but not as judge. One of these youth justice coordinators, a former probation officer called Matt Hakiaha, visited Canada in late 1995. He told me about one case he had coordinated in which four youths had broken into a school, done some drinking, and then accidentally set a fire which they could not control and which ended up doing extensive damage. The whole family group conference of this case took about three days. So we adjourned one day, went back. But you see, the first day was mainly focused around feelings, you know, feelings of animosity, you know, where, where, where teachers, where parents were saying, look, you know, you've burnt our school down. You know, our kids have to be catered for now, and they can't be. So they've had to build temporary classrooms. But it was interesting. We, I, I got the picture in my mind quite clear of these four fenders, and they were sitting there, you know, sort of unmoved, unemotional, and then this young young girl walked up with her scrapbook that she had in her classroom and it was half charred, you know, but one half was just burned to a crisp and charred, the other half was charred. And she came up and stood in front of these four boys and four fenders and she said, you know, this is all I've got as a remembrance of my of my of my brother because I've got a, the scrapbook is, is photos of my family and photo of my brother. And he died not so long ago, about a year ago, and that's all I've got now. And then you see the tears trickling down these four boys. And you see the impact that was made by, by, the, by the victims was amazing. And I wonder whether a court would do that. I wonder whether a court process would allow emotion to come out in terms of the offenders. And in this case, it meant that the offence was personalised to the offenders. It meant that they were able to take ownership of the offence. And it meant also that they um, could deal with their own feelings about it. Once everyone has had their say about what the events in question have meant to them, a family group conference is required to reach a settlement satisfactory to all concerned. The family of the offender is encouraged to take the lead in proposing a solution. Matt Hakiaha describes the solution arrived at in the case of the school fire. They had no fiscal means to, to pay the school back. I mean, we're talking about something like half a million dollars worth of damage here. Um, so in this case, they, they wrote letters of apology to the classrooms that were destroyed, to the Ministry of Education, to the school board. They apologised to the victims in person. In this case, when I refer to as a direct victims, I'm referring to the school principal, the teachers, the board, the pupils. And then later on, part of their penalty plan was to build a playground, a um, playground, and that took them six months. So every Saturday and Sunday, they would have to go to the school and help the groundsmen, people and supervisors erect this um, playground for the kids at school. And at the end of their six months, they had an unveiling ceremony of the, um, of the hard work they'd done. This plan was not initially embraced by the four boys. They accepted it only when confronted by the alternative. Initially, there was resentment. I'm not going to do this. I don't want to do this. And I said, well, young man, the other option, young men, the other option we have is that I hand it to the court and the court will deal with you. And it means that you could spend some time incarcerated. I don't know what it could mean, but I suspect, and my experiences have taught me, that you could be incarcerated. So, and, but it was interesting. The family said, no, they're going to come, and we will come with them. 
They're our children. We will be responsible with our children. And either their father or I will be down here with these children. And they were. And they were. Every Saturday and Sunday, one of the parents was down there. So was there some pride at the end? Oh, look. I mean, personally, <laughs> I think they got off too light in the end because they were looked on as heroes. <laughs> you know, they were. And, but I'll tell you what, I've never seen those four boys since. And I doubt whether they'll ever go through the criminal system. I doubt it. In fact, I sort of have friends who work for adult systems, and I say, look, these names come up to you. They said, this is six years ago. I mean, these young boys are 21, 22 now. They're men. They're, one of them's a father. You know, and he sees me down the street and goes, hello, Matt. I said, oh, hello. Cases that can't be settled through family group conferences can be referred to regular courts. But Matt Hakiaha says that of a thousand conferences he has convened, only a few have failed to find a settlement. And these settlements are often as demanding as any court-ordered punishment. For example, I had a young man who had a motor vehicle of his own. He had paid the deposit. His parents had got a bank loan to pay the remaining. It was a nice car, valued about 7000 New Zealand dollars. Now, in this case, the young man, he and a group of friends went to town, the movies, and when they came out, they saw another car next to us, and they said, oh, we like the radio in it. We're going to take this radio. But then they decided to take the whole car. As a result of taking the car, they took the car and they wrote the car off. Now, when they got to the family group conference, initially Shane apologised to the victim and to his family. But then the victim said, no, you're going to hear how this has affected me. Number one, I've got a daughter who's asthmatic. And when my daughter has an asthma attack, I've got to call 111 in New Zealand. And it means I've got to wait for an ambulance. In the past, I could take my daughter to emergency in, my, in, the own, in our own car. Number two is I've got a son who plays soccer. Okay, now he can't go because he can't go to training and he can't go to games. We're now reliant on other team members or the neighbours. Number three, I can't do my shopping. I can't shop for our family because you've taken our car. And Shane, at that stage, became a blubbering mess. So he then started to own, own the offence in its entirety, not just for the actual offence, but he owned the circumstances that surrounded the ramifications of the offence. So there was a wider ownership, and there was also a personalisation of the offence. The end result is that Shane had to give up his car, $7,000 car, and give it to the victim. So at the family group conference, it was decided by the family, Shane's family, Shane's mum and dad and Shane, that he would give up his car for the victim. Now, long-term effects. I've never seen Shane since. And um, the police and I were interested in the offence, and so we sort of did a surveillance on crime within a two-mile radius of Shane's home. And there was no offending by juveniles in Shane's, the radius of Shane's home for a mile-and-a-half, two-mile radius. Why? Shane said to me later on that he would prefer to have gone to prison for two or three months because then he would have his car back and still there. The embarrassment that came upon Shane because Shane had to tell his friends that he lost his car because of the theft of another car. Also, friends saw Shane, Shane's car, being driven by another owner. So Shane had the stigma and embarrassment of Shane, who's, why is that old lady driving your car? I mean, I was highly offended at that when they said that old lady. I mean, she was younger than me. And Shane said, oh, you know the car I took? Yeah, well, that's the owner. She's got my car. Matt Hakiaha belongs to New Zealand's native Maori nation. And he says that Maori New Zealanders feel a certain pride of ownership in this way of doing things, 
because it's explicitly drawn from their tradition. So far, it has produced brilliant results for the whole society. It has radically reduced the number of youths in custody and the number of court appearances by youthful offenders. This has in turn drastically reduced the costs of the system. And because of the involvement of family and community, agreements reached by family group conferences are more likely to be effectively supervised and carried out than youth court decisions. In the first year that the family group conference system was used, researchers found that out of a representative sample of a hundred young offenders, only two ended up in custody. The comparable figure for Canada is over 30. The people you've heard in tonight's program so far, Dave Worth, Dave Gustafson, and Matt Hakiaha, are all seeking a different account of justice than the one that they think underlies our present criminal justice institutions. The name most commonly given to this new perspective is restorative justice, and one of the most influential articulations of what it is has come from an American Mennonite called Howard Zare. He has worked in prisons and for a number of years directed a victim-offender reconciliation project. In 1990, he published a book called Changing Lenses, which argued that most criminal justice practice rests on a set of fundamentally flawed definitions. We define crime primarily in terms of breaking rules instead of the harm done to people, and we define legally that we define the, the offenses against the state. The state is a victim. And the reason that victims are so left out of our process is not an accident, I've concluded. And it's not because we don't have enough victim assistance programs. It's because they're not a fundamental part of the definition. Offense is against, is against the state. It's a state versus an offender who's basically a passive participant in that process with no place for the victim. The idea that the state is the primary victim of crime has a long history. Taking over the power to prosecute criminals was one of the main ways in which modern states expanded and consolidated their grip on their national territories. But originally, Howard Zare says, they didn't have this power. Through most of Western history, that we, we understood crime as a violation that creates obligations. When you violate somebody, you create an obligation. That's been, for those of us from a Western tradition, that is, is the understanding that our foreparents operated under. It's also the understanding that most cultures most traditional cultures in, our, in this world have understood. And that was the, in, let's say in the Middle Ages, and you were victimized in some way, you basically had three options. You could do what was the norm, you could try to settle it in some way, and you could involve the local notables, the village elders, the church or someone in that process of mediation and, and uh, writing up a contract. That was the kind of standard response. Second, you could go to court, and get the state to act as a kind of referee to bring that offender and the two of you together. But as soon as you settled it, the, the court had no power to continue the case because they didn't have the legal right to prosecute. It was in the hands of the victim to choose those things. Or you could have start a feud. And, you know, we've been told often that those feuds were out of control and that that's why the modern legal system was invented. Some historians are now really questioning that, saying that the feuds were not nearly as out of control as we think, that it was not... It was not the norm, because after all, you don't want to start a feud with someone else. Uh, it has the implications are too, too profound. 
As the modern conception of justice evolved, victims gradually lost the right to direct their own cases. Howard Zaret traces the roots of this modern conception back to the Roman Catholic Church. In the 11th century, he suggests, there were conflicts between church and state which led each to try and bolster its authority. One of the ways the church found to do this was by elaborating a body of law, canon law as it came to be called. Citing the precedent of Justinian's Code, the only ancient law code which allowed the state to prosecute and not just mediate crimes, the church radically expanded its power. Canon law gave a central authority the right to prosecute cases, to invent law as needed. Scholars could get together and study a body of law, and they could elaborate on it. They could invent laws based on abstract principles. That had not been the case for law previously. Law would have been customary laws based on what people do. And Herman Bianchi from the Netherlands has, has written that, that really what happened in that process is that the church and then later the state began to prosecute, but also that crime turned from a, from a wrong that had been done somebody, to somebody to a, a social heresy. And the Inquisition was the, uh, in the kind of the worst case scenario, was the Inquisition where the central authority tried to root out evil. From these inquisitorial origins has grown a way of doing things that is very much focused on wrong, on rooting out evil, on punishment. What is very often missing, Howard Zare thinks, is a conception of how things are to be set right. Justice is defined primarily as establishing blame and giving out pain. That is, if you go to law school, you will spend most of your time studying the guilt phase uh, the due process protections that protect one as one goes through that, and so forth, you will spend very little time studying how the case ought to come out because the fulcrum of justice, the pivot point of justice, is guilt. And then one guilt, once guilt is established, we assume that people ought to suffer for that. They ought to experience pain. Nils Christie says that penal law means pain law. So let's call a spade a spade. It's, it's a law of pain. And so we measure that primarily in in years of prison. And that, in kind of a nutshell, is, is, is what it's about. Now, it has a number of characteristics that go with it. One of them is it's very hierarchical. It's authoritarian. It's, it's using... Victims are left out of it. Offenders are told what to do. Instead of being held responsible in the sense of having to understand what they did and, and do something about it and take responsibility for it, they are told what's going to happen to them, and usually it has no reference to the victim at all. Uh, so it's a, it's a system that, you know, the, the way offenders do what they do in many cases is by insulating themselves from the human consequences of what they do. They use all kinds of neutralizing strategies um, to distance themselves from the fact that they're hurting a person. They, they have stereotypes. They have rationalizations. They, you know, that there's insurance. I'm not going to hurt a person. Uh, all kinds of excuses that are used to insulate themselves from the impact of what they did. And then we put them through a criminal justice process that encourages them to distance themselves from that and not understand the implications. The, the implications for them are so serious that they are taught to look out for themselves. In fact, what we have taught people is that it's a state, no matter how guilty you are, it's the government's responsibility to prove it. And so you are taught to go in, no matter how guilty you are, you're taught to go into their courtroom and say, I'm not guilty. Not because you're not guilty, but because it's the state's responsibility to prove it. So we encourage them to distance themselves. Then we put them in prisons where the whole culture 
goes against their taking responsibility. So it's a system that is that is not accounted, hold offenders accountable in any meaningful sense. It's a system that has completely lost our four parents idea that when you wrong somebody, you create a liability, you create an obligation. In trying to re-engender the sense of crime as obligation, Howard Zare is not saying that we can always afford to dispense with the full adversarial process of the law. He's saying, I think, that we often try to crack a nut with a sledgehammer. We've taken the most heinous, bizarre kind of cases you can imagine, and we've created a whole system to deal with that, and we've, now we've made that our norm for everybody. We need to change our, our understanding of what the norm is to one that's restorative, one that looks to restoring the victim, first of all, and, and then working at, at whatever healing needs to happen for the offender as well. There, there are some cases which are very difficult to sort out, and we're going to have to have something like an adversarial system to sort out the truth. There are cases where the person is so dangerous that they need to be locked up, and someone is going to have to make a judgment about that. There are those kind of cases. They're not all that way. We, what I'm trying to say is that we need another track. The other thing I think we've done wrong is that we have, we have gotten the, the public and private dimensions of crime out of balance. Uh, there, is, there are both dimensions to crime. To a crime, a crime occurs, there's a community dimension and there's an individual dimension, dimension of the harm to the victim. What we've done is elevated the public dimension until that's the whole ball of wax. There's no place for the private. We need to bring them back into balance in some way. So there have to be ways to involve the community. There have to be ways to take into account the community's fears and other, ki and other kinds of concerns. But we need to find ways to address just as much the, the victim's harm, the harm to the victim, and the responsibility that offender may have to that, to that victim. Howard Zare believes that one of the most powerful ways of making the offender aware of that responsibility is through shame. He has closely followed the development of the Family Group Conference in New Zealand, and he's also been interested in the work of the Australian criminologist John Braithwaite, who is the author of a book called Crime, Shame, and Reintegration. In this book, Braithwaite distinguishes between two types of shame, stigmatizing shame and reintegrative shame. Howard Zare thinks it's a crucial distinction. The shame that our criminal justice system reflects is a stigmatizing shame. It says that you are bad, and what you did is bad, but you are also bad, and really nothing you can do. You can serve your time in prison, for instance, but that will not remove the burden of that shame from you. Uh, you will always be an ex-offender. So what do you do? You find other people who have been shamed also, and you hang together. That's the root of delinquent subcultures. You, you convert shame into a badge of respect. I was interviewing a lifer uh, serving a real-life sentence in Pennsylvania prison a couple weeks ago, and we got talking about shame and respect. And I said, well, he'd been in there 20 years, but I said, when you were growing up in North Philly, what gave you shame and what gave you respect? And he said, well... What gave me respect is what you would think should give me shame. He said it was when I mugged somebody, when I stole somebody, when I attacked somebody, that made me proud. He said, I, I remember my first arrest. I rode through the, my community in the back of that police car, and it was the proudest moment of my life. I had become a man. Well, that's what stigmatizing shame does. There's another kind of shame, and that's reintegrative shame. That's, that shame says that you did something bad, but if you do something to take responsibility for that, you can be accepted back. That, that is a very powerful motivator. And so that the people from New Zealand, for instance, are saying, 
you need to involve the community. You need a wider circle as shame is going to be both powerful as a negative, as a denouncer of wrong and powerful as a reaffirmation of the person. It's one thing, for instance, they say in New Zealand to, to be shamed in front of your victim. It's another one to be shamed in front of your grandmother. That's even more serious. Furthermore, by having the family and community, they will usually affirm the person. In most cases in these processes, they denounce the act, but they also affirm the offender in some way. Without this affirmation, a vicious circle is set in motion because there's no way to overcome your shame except by perversely claiming it as your honor. And that's exactly what Howard Zare thinks has happened in the United States today, after 20 years of trying to restore order to the inner cities by imprisoning and ostracizing offenders. There's an American sociologist, Elijah Anderson, who's written very eloquently about the code of the streets that's coming to dominate urban, inner-city America. And he says that it, what it is is a sense of nihilism that has um, this that's a kind of oppositional culture that's growing up in which respect is central. It's, it's, the assumption is kind of that respect is hard won, it's, easy to, it's hard to win, and then you have to hang on to it. It's easily lost, that it's a kind of limited amount of respect to go around, and that getting it means putting somebody else down. And that the code of the streets is essentially a framework for negotiating respect in a world turned upside down. That it, you get respect by presenting yourself as violent and unpredictable. Illegal possessions, you know, stealing from another person are important precisely because they give respect. They show your willingness to violate another person. Hard drugs are cool precisely because they're dangerous, which makes deterrence a hopeless kind of concept in that context. Prison time it proves that you're tough. It's another source of respect. So we're going to have to address the sources of nihilism, the sources of respect in our society, and part of the way we're going to have to do that is through a justice that is respectful, that in, that's respectful of victims and offenders, and that teaches respect for one another. And so I, more and more I'm coming to think that the concept of respect is a very essential one. You know, I, I first thought about this. I was, I was asked to address the Bishop of Lincoln's Conference in England for uh, prison officers and chaplains, and the theme was respect, and I thought it was a really dorky subject. And the more I worked on it, the more I realized it was the most profound topic I'd ever been given, that respect is at the core of why people commit crimes, and respect is at the core of how victims understand their experience, or disrespect, and that respect is going to have to be at the core of justice. And that means we're going to have to take the victim and offender their needs seriously, and we're going to have to make them full participants in the process in some way. This will obviously not be easy, especially given the huge inertial weight of the present way of doing things. But there are reasons to hope, and one of them, Howard Zare says, is that this is already how people get along in families, workplaces, and neighborhoods. The capacity to correct people without turning them into permanent enemies is there. It just needs to be uncovered. I remember one of our early cases that I've always liked in our victim-offender mediation program where two young men had broken into a factory and they had vandalized this factory and put about... They'd taken fire extinguishers and just sprayed them all over the place. And they put, I think, several hundred people out of work for a day while it was cleaned up. And we brought them together in our traditional model. We brought a foreman together with these two kids and he read them the riot act. He told them about all the people he'd, they'd harmed and so forth. He had one of the guys in tears before he was done. And then he said, well, I really want you to... I'd like you to clean up the mess, but we've already done it, but there is an empty lot next door. I'd like you to clean that up, and I'd like you to meet the people you put out of work. 
And it wasn't very easy for him. They did it. And on the last day, he said, I'd like you to bring your bathing suits along. And he took them to the owner's house, and they had a nice party. They had a meal. And then they had themselves a ceremony, and they burnt the contracts. And the kids were so proud of themselves. They, had, they knew they'd done something wrong, but they also knew that they'd faced the people they wronged, and they'd done something about it. And their, their grades literally went up dramatically in school as a result of it. Now, that was, that was nobody told this foreman how to do that. Uh, you know, nobody gave me a suggestion. He invented that. He, he thought of that on his own. And my feeling is that that, that potential is out there. You give the community a chance, and, and there's a lot of possibilities for that. On Ideas, you've listened to Part 7 of Prison and Its Alternatives by David Cayley. Production assistant for tonight's program, Gail Brownell. Technical operations, Lauren Tulk. Producer, Alison Moss. A transcript of tonight's program is available for $7 plus GST, or you can order the entire 10-part series for only $25 plus GST. Send us a check or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. We also have a free reading list on the series, available at the same address. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair.